everybody. Welcome to our fifth episode of Talking Hedge, live from a sunny London. I'm your host, Pratesh Ruparel, Chief Commercial Officer at Shore Hedge. For this episode, I'm really excited to be joined by John Slazinger. John, who as many of you know with, through the Newswise this week, has been recently appointed to the board of a Shore Hedge. Earlier this week, John, I spoke to a mutual friend of mine, um, of ours, sorry, about your appointment, who had one thing to say to me. No matter how much you think you know about any subject, John knows more, so make sure you listen <laughs> to what he has to say. Uh, we're all very excited to have you on board and to have your strategic input at Zscale. Now, John has been working in fintech long before it was called fintech or it was even cool. Um, he's held a number of senior roles across firms that have had a huge impact on fintech, such as IBM, Capgemini, and many more. But most recently, over the last decade, John has been chief enterprise architect at Temenos, the large banking software company uh, where he's overseen the transformation of the company's technology to scale and meet the demands of the world's largest banks and move from on-premise to cloud deployment. In this episode, we're going to discuss the important technology changes that have enabled the customer-facing fintech innovation that we're all excited about. In addition, we're going to debunk a few technology myths, as well as discuss practical lessons from John's 40 years of modernizing enterprise software. John, welcome. Thank you very much, Bruce. Well, maybe we'll start off by just uh, hearing from you a little bit about your background. That's okay. Uh, well, yeah, I started my uh, working life at IBM, as you said. I was there for 16 years. Uh, I kind of did, uh, I did a new role every two years. Uh, so <laughs> until I joined Temenos, that, that, that stayed true all through my career. Okay. So I started off um, you know, working uh, with, with Shell, um, helping them move their systems from the old Shell MEX systems to the Shell UK systems. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after various uh, similar roles facing customers, I um, went over to France to help connect IBM mainframes to the Minitel systems. So the Minitel, a forgotten thing now, but in the 80s, it was like a kind of a dry run for the internet. Okay. Um, but France decided, France had a terrible telecom system in the 70s, the worst in Europe. And so they, they completely modernized and they built the first all digital telephone and data network in the world but they had no users, no one used it. So they decided to give everybody a little terminal made by Sony for $200 uh, in exchange for not taking the telephone directory. And that created an incredible surge of uh, digital services in France in the mid eighties. Um, and uh, uh, my, my job was to help build the software that connected IBM mainframes to that Minitown network. So, so when the internet came around a day, decade later, I said, oh, I've seen this before. And then uh, after doing that for two years, and uh, the piece of software we wrote was phenomenally successful in, in uh, France, which, which by the end of the 80s was 95% was of the world's market for X25, okay. um, dominated X25, uh, which, which was the kind of open protocol um, before the internet came along. Um, then after that, I went, I went and worked on CICS, Customer Information Control System, which was and still is the world's most successful ever software product, uh, commercial software product. Uh, I think there were 400 of us working on Kicks, and uh, IBM's profit per employee was a million dollars, and that was in the mid-90s. And then I never thought I'd leave IBM, but, but, but IBM um, you know, had a meltdown in 93, so I left and went over to New York, uh, where I'd always wanted to work, and worked 
Having worked on application middleware, I then worked on data middleware. I became product manager for EdSQL. We jointly invented ODBC with uh, Microsoft. Um, and uh, after, after my stint at, at Information Builders doing that, I, I kind of alternated between being sort of chief architect for a software company and being a, um, a consulting enterprise architect. So, so I did two years as the first global chief architect for Dun & Bradstreet, then did integration projects on Wall Street as an enterprise architect, then, then went to Iway Software again as chief architect, and then came back to London as um, an enterprise architect at Capgemini and Atos, and then joined uh, Terminos. As, in this role, I'm kind of doing both at the same time. I'm liking, uh, acting like an internal enterprise architecture consultant, uh, uh, and also as uh, chief architect. Amazing. Um, sounds like, you know, from your experience, you've seen technology change and, and you know, move so quickly. How do you keep it informed of all the changes that are going on? Well, well it, it, the technology is like the opposite of a duck. So <laughs> when you say the duck looks like it's serenely going along the water and underneath there's stuff furiously churning. Technology is the opposite. There's stuff at the top furiously churning, but underneath things are pretty much the same all the time. And I see that, you know, as you said, after four decades, you see the same things coming around every 10 years. And as, as my boss at uh, uh, Temenos once said, IT is a fashion industry. You get all these fashion terms. Um, so, you know, fashion terms are, that are, um, you know, in the moment of microservices, APIs, et cetera. And before that, it was service-oriented architecture. And before that, it was client-server. You know, all these fashion terms. But the underlying reality of what you have to do to make it work hasn't changed at all. Um, and every time a fashion term comes along, I have to make a decision in my own mind. Is this just fashion uh, and, and people you know, generating churn for its own sake? Or is there something real behind it? So I was kind of, you know, I, I dismissed SOA as, as being a myth. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm embracing microservices from the point of view of you need it for maintainability, especially on shared services. Um, uh, you know, event-driven architecture is absolutely essential. Um, so, so some of them, some of them, are worth having. Some aren't. Uh, what I, when I arrived at Temenos, my job was to you know, tell a story about how you take a monolith and break it up. Um, and so I, I kind of had six slices of the monolith. Um, uh, to, to, to break it up. Um, and we tell stories about those six slices and we're still telling them. And so for example, one slice was to slice the user interface off and make all the services headless, uh, which I call the interaction framework because it's about interaction. People now call that APIs, but APIs is it's a thoroughly misleading term, right? So first yeah. of all, but what people call APIs are actually remote procedure calls, not local application programming interface calls. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, you, you use remote procedure calls uh, and local API calls all over the place for different things, but the, the thing they want to use it for, right, is interaction. If you if you try and you can't use it end to end for integration, for example. And in fact, I would say that's the number one uh, mistake people make in enterprise architecture is confusing interaction and integration because it's very easy to do that. So I had integration and interaction as two of my slices. Uh, we now call them APIs and events because it's trendier. So for somebody, you obviously have a vast 
wealth of knowledge through experience and being at the sharp end of, of innovation. But what what would you say is a good reference point or, you know, for somebody to really learn about enterprise software or, or the industry as a whole? Or, or are you going to write a book one day and, and let us all find out the truth? Tr- I'm going to write the book. Okay, um, good. <laughs> so, uh, I've actually started... I started writing the book uh, when I was running the Enterprise Architecture Practice at Atos Consulting. Okay. So I, wrote, I wrote a half a dozen papers to form the, the, the spine of the book. But I've been learning so much at Temenos <laughs> I've been, I've been, about application software that I've been putting it off until I've got that, that organized. But I, I think now is the time. I, you know, my aim is to write the book next year. Right? Amazing. Well, look, there you go. Talk, talking hedge first, getting exclusive on the uh, <laughs> on the book to be to be read by everyone. <laughs> That's great. And uh, so, that'll bring it back to maybe a, a rapidly scaling company like Assure Hedge. What what's this, the kind of single piece of advice you might give somebody like us uh, at, at this stage, if you had to? Um. So from an enterprise architect's point of view, the single most important thing about the systems that support a company like Assure Hedge is making sure you know who owns them. Uh, Ownership is the number one question. Um, Which is one of the reasons I hate working for government or doing doing consulting with government because it's extremely hard to answer the question in government who owns this system, right? (laughs) Right. I remember we were, um, when I was, uh, one of the first engagements at Atos um, was uh, the creation of Yodel, the, the delivery company, formed from two other delivery companies that, that merged. And uh, we had a, a big meeting up in the Northwest. Uh, everybody was there and uh, they started talking about the systems. And every time they mentioned a new system, I would ask the same question. I'd say, who owns this? And inevitably, someone in IT would say, well, well I own it. And I'd look at him and I'd say, oh, so you pay for this out of your own budget? And he goes, oh, no, no, I don't pay for it. And I said, well, surely the owner of somebody is the person who pays for it, right? It's not the person who runs it. It's not the person who uses it. It's, it's the person who pays for it. And they'd say, oh, oh, okay, so you want to know who pays for this system? And I'd go, yeah, I want to know who pays for this system. And in some cases, they would have to think hard to find out who owned it, right? And um, I did some work as an enterprise, and again, at Atos with Freshfields, the huge law firm. They had an excellent chief architect there. And uh, he had on his wall a, a, a lovely diagram which showed all of the systems that supported Freshfields. And if it had a single unequivocal owner, it was coded in green. If they didn't know who owned it, they coded it in red. And, and if they thought it had multiple owners, they coded in a, a middle a mixture of red and green, and he's you know, and he said, "My my aim is just to turn this diagram green." And that that was brilliant. I thought that was one of the best things I've seen. So so that a lot of the stuff I've been on the technical advisory committee uh, with uh, your Hedge. A lot of what I've been doing is saying, "Well, who owns this this domain? Who owns the banking domain? Who owns the foreign exchange domain? Who owns the customer domain? Who owns the back office domain?" Who owns the analytics domain? And just make sure that you're providing value for money for, the, for that person. Very, it's a very good way of breaking down uh, the, the, the kind of business business ownership of that that project. I think we often get too deep in the in the weeds of it all to kind of look at it like that. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, 
it's if, if what we're providing isn't giving good value for money, you have to find it from somewhere else. Yeah. Right. yeah. When we when we had a call last week, John, you gave a very simple breakdown of a business between brand risk and compliance, which I thought was was brilliant that I hadn't heard before. Maybe you could just just give that uh, overview for our listeners. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have very few original ideas, but I'm very good at picking up ideas from, from other people uh, and, and applying them, maybe in, in areas they wouldn't have thought of. But um, uh, just before the dot-com crash, during the dot-com boom, um, a, lo- a lot of companies with no expectation of profit uh, were, make, were getting huge valuations on Wall Street. And JP Morgan, and it was JP Morgan, it was before they merged with Chase, um, wanted to know, you know what they could do to get similar valuations for their shareholders. And uh, they had a, uh, a think tank called Lab Morgan, uh, which was an absolutely wonderful place, Lab Morgan. And, and uh, they said um, that the, the, what you needed to do was to turn the company into separate IPO-able units. And they reckon there are about 50 IPO-able business units in JP Morgan. And that raised the question, well, okay, if these 50 units could all be sold, what represents JP Morgan, right? What, what is the central bit? And uh, they, the, the brilliant insight they had was that it's brand risk and compliance, um, which, which marries neatly into the front, middle, back view of, um, of commerce and, and record keeping. Um, uh, and uh, there's a thing called resources, events, and agents, which is the accountant's view of record keeping as opposed to bookkeeping, which I think is another brilliant insight. And it lines up with that as well, because uh, they say the events have three kinds um, uh, and they line up with brand risk and compliance. So, so brand is basically you know, the, the front office. It's um, how you relate to your, your customers. Um, uh, and it goes, you can have brand across all of your business units. Right? And that, that belongs to the entity as a whole. And, and then your risk lines up with your middle office. In, in fact, I once met the guy who claimed he invented middle office, and he said it's about management of, of, of real-time risk. Um, and, and that's where uh, you, you have your relationship to your stakeholders, so other people who invest in the company and, and the employees. And then compliance is the back office, and, and that represents your relationship to the communities in which the company operates. So, so that brand risk compliance, I've used that ever since uh, uh, as a way of explaining what's going on in the organization, trying to tease out the relationships and it works brilliantly. Now, in the end, JP Morgan didn't IPO 50 business units, instead they merged with Chase. And then in fact, that was quite interesting because we were starting a project called Straight Through Information at JP Morgan uh, uh, to, to, to create this independent unit that represented brand risk and finance run by the head of finance. Um, there was no uh, office in JP Morgan on Wall Street big enough to hold the kickoff meeting. So we actually held it at the top of Shea, uh, the Chase building. And the, the, the finance, chief financial officer said, you know, welcome to this project here in the, in the heart of enemy country. <laughs> the, next, the next day, they announced they were merging with Chase and canceled the project. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, John. Uh, so g- going on to kind of um, enterprise software, looking at software, it's, it's obviously it's changed a lot, but is there a typical life cycle for a software company? Software companies, yeah. And, and this doesn't have to be enterprise software. I think this applies to pretty much all software companies. Okay. So um, 
there are thousands of people all the time with brilliant ideas for software. You know, they, they've played with PCs, you know, they know how to program, they, they have an idea and they, um, they quit their job, they max out their credit cards and they, they, they do a lot of coding, right? 99% of those never get their first customer. So, so that the first thing is finding someone who's gonna pay for what you've done. Finding yeah. that, that's the first phase. Once you have your first customer, you're, you're on the, you've, you've got going, you're, you're now a bona fide software company. Uh, the problem is that it's such an effort to get that first customer, especially in enterprise software, um, that, that you, for the second customer, you do the same thing you did for the first customer, which is just do whatever they want to make sure that they, they, get, they buy the product. If you do that roughly 30 times and you don't maintain a common code base across all of your customers, uh, you, you end up with an unsupportable uh, customer set. You, you're spending so much time and effort on the maintenance that you no longer have any bandwidth to do new product development. Um, so, so, you know, Temnos, we've acquired a whole, many of the co companies we've acquired have been because they've got to that step. They, they, they've got 30 customers, but the, the maintenance overhead is, is, is overwhelming them. So, so that the second, the second phase is getting past 30 customers with a single code base. Um, but, but that's the, and, and really that's when you enter the race to be a unicorn is when you get past that phase. And, and then the third phase, uh, and I've worked for several companies that were at that third phase when I was working for them, including information builders. Um, roughly when you get to half a billion in revenue uh, in dollar terms, um, uh, to, to get, to get there, you've built a team of people that the CEO, possibly still the founder, really trusts. Um, and the, the, the modus operandi has been to give roles to people, not assign people to roles, right? And, and that, that will get you to half a billion. It's unlikely to get you to a billion in revenue, right? You won't become, so a billion valuation is a unicorn, but actually a billion in revenue is a big software company. So if you want to get, get to that billion in revenue, um, you, you have to at some stage flip it. And this is typically when the founder leaves and, and a, a new CEO is put in place. You flip it so that you're, you have an organization that you know can scale and you fit people into roles in that organization. So you flip from, from giving roles to people to giving people to roles. And, and that's the final stage. At that stage, you've now become, you're scaling up to be you know, a worldwide global large software company. Very interesting. Um, so, you know, one of the most important changes, I guess, we've seen in over the last 20 years, probably brought on by the internet and then most recently open banking, has been this separation of distribution and manufacturing. And how important has that change been for, for innovation? Oh, absolutely crucial. Um, uh, again, this is something that I brought to Temenos, the very first whiteboard session I did with my boss, the CTO was about separating out um, distribution from manufacturing. At that stage, I was still calling it front office and middle and back office. In fact, it wasn't until um, a, a buy-in, Banking Industry Architecture Network meeting, where the head of the, the CTO of UBS presented uh, that I started using the terms distribution and manufacturing. Um, but but the, the reason I was able to bring that to Temenos when I joined was because you know, those Two, those two or three years doing integration projects on Wall Street were all about the separation of the buy side from the sell side. 
which is exactly the same separation. Um, so in fact, and before that, I'd done work in, um, in travel uh, when I was at IBM. Uh, and that was the first industry to, in terms of its system support, to separate distribution from manufacturing. So, so in the early 80s, uh, the US government had an anti-competitive lawsuit against American Airlines because of what they were doing with the Sabre uh, reservation system. Uh, they were offering it to travel agents and whenever they asked for a route, they were showing the American Airlines segments first. Um, so, so a whole bunch of things happened to settle that uh, dispute. And one of which was setting up six global distribution systems in the airline industry. So, so a travel agent would not talk directly to you know, one of the airline reservation systems or one of the hotel systems or one of the car rental systems. Instead, they would talk to a global distribution system. So the, the, the four big ones, were American, you know, American Airlines Sabre, Worldspan, Galileo, and Amadeus. And in fact, I, I was working for IBM when we built the Galileo data center at Greenford in London, uh, which, which then got moved to Swindon and became nationwide data center later, and then moved to Denver. And I actually, I, I, I was on the due diligence team, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, when Sendent acquired uh, Galileo. So I saw that from beginning to end. Um, but, but, but the global distribution systems now provide uh, all the information to the travel agents and disintermediate the travel agent from the, the reservation, the actual reservation systems. So they actually call it a global distribution system, which is exactly what it's doing. Um, and the, um, they, they called all the systems behind inventory holders, but, but they are manufacturing systems. Now. The, the, the problem, of course, with the airline industry is as well as having the airline reservation system, they also have to fly airplanes. But, but banks work exactly the same way, except for they don't have to fly the airplanes. What comes out of the manufacturing is the product. And that, that's what I say about Temenos. We're in this unique relationship with our customers because we write the product that manufactures and distributes their product. So, so it, all, all industries started to follow that, 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 that separation of distribution from manufacturing, starting with travel. So, um, you know, I don't get my phone service from a company that runs a phone network. Um, I, don't, I don't get my gas electricity from companies that generate gas and electricity. Um, yeah, all the industries and in financial services, um, capital markets separated the sell side from the, from the buy side. So the buy side is distribution and sell side is manufacturing. Uh, banking and insurance are the last two industries that are still monolithic. The only way you can get to the bank account is through its channels. So, so uh, I started talking about this separation when I joined in 2011. Um, and we, in fact, I started talking about it a decade before that with CIBC. Uh, we, did, we did the architecture for, for capital markets. And then I was talking with their chief architect in 2001. And I said, you know, don't you think the same thing is going to happen to banking? And we drew up what it would look like. And I was reusing those diagrams. I'm still reusing those diagrams now. <laughs> 2001. Uh, um, so, so open banking was um, is like a chisel neatly placed between the front office and the middle and back office, separating distribution from manufacturing. So, so we, the regulators put the chisel there. What we don't know is how hard it's going to hit the chisel. Is it going to hit it with a 10 kilogram sledgehammer or is it going to hit it with a feather? Um, it's looking more like a feather than a 10 kilogram sledgehammer, to be fair. Um, but but, but it, what it's prompted, PSD2 has prompted open banking 
uh, regulatory initiatives all over the world. So there are over 60 jurisdictions doing it now and, and they are separated. That will cause open banking to occur. But the, I have to say that the banks are not embracing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're tolerating it. Right. Yeah. We used to have, when I was at IBM, we used to say for everything we had to do when developing CICS, is this a best of breed or a least hit change, right? And I think that the banks are treating open banking as a least hit change. Okay. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good good way of thinking about it. <laughs> you, you briefly touched on uh, APIs earlier um, and people get very excited about APIs and APIs being the root of all ecosystem models, but would you would you argue the role of APIs overblown? Is that what I call, call earlier from you? And, and if so, why is that? Well, you, you have to position the APIs correctly in the architecture. So um, uh, the APIs, which are really remote procedure calls, uh, are the way you separate the user interfaces from the services behind them, uh, and. The, that that's an absolutely crucial role and is necessary. It's much more difficult than people think it is. Right? Um, and here's why. Um, uh, you, you, you want your API, if you want other third parties to use your API, you, 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 your API can't break the programs that use it. Right? So the evolution that takes place, and there will be evolution, uh, has to take place in, in an upward compatible way at some level. Um, uh, but, but, the, but the problem with accessing business systems through APIs is that the business systems may, may be changing, right? You may be configuring them to have new data or you may be refactoring your systems. So you, you need to have an API that you offer third parties that, that is about the capability they're offering and not about the systems that implement them. And, and that, that itself is difficult. So, so people talk about actually having two layers of APIs, an API that, that you offer to the, to the public, uh, and programmers would call that public interface, but the industry tends to call that an experience API. And, and then the API that you, you talk to the actual underlying systems, and programmers would call that a private interface, but, but the industry is calling it an enterprise API. So you have experience and enterprise API, and you have to map one to the other. Uh, and that's what you would do to have uh, an open API that, that third parties could use. But that's not what banks are doing. What, bank, what banks are doing is the commissioning uh, the user interfaces to be written for a set version of the systems and the API. And then when that changes, they just re rewrite the whole thing, right? So, so that works for them because they own both the user interface and the systems. But that certainly wouldn't work if they were offering it to third parties. And that, that's one of the reasons why open banking is kind of looking least hit, not best of breed, right? But what, what's, what's interesting is uh, people are calling their APIs REST, which stands for Representative State Transfer, which was the, um, the, the architectural concept underneath HTTP 1.1, built by Roy Fielding. Uh, probably the, one of the most successful protocols ever deployed. You know, maybe up there with TCP/IP, maybe even more successful than TCP/IP. So Roy Fielding uh, wrote a thesis about it uh, and published uh, you know, uh, some papers on on representational state representational state transfer. 
Uh, and people call their HTTP APIs REST, but they aren't. But they're straight RPCs, remote procedure calls. Um, but, but if people were to do a proper REST API, that would, that would have all those characteristics that you want. Uh, uh, it would be about the resources, not about the underlying systems. Um, it would uh, allow you to write a, a user agent that exploits the resources that, that are defined at the time you write it. And if new resources are added, it will allow you to tolerate them until you write a new version of the user interface that then exploits them again. So you'd have exploit, tolerate, exploit, tolerate, progression. Right, but, but uh, for, for, for one reason or another, no one's doing that. Right? So, so open APIs are in, in banking are suffering. Yeah. And the, well, now the other thing, of course, is that people are seeing PSD2 as being about APIs, but, but, but it isn't. PSD2 is a business-to-business -business relationship between distributors and manufacturers. So if you look at all the other industries that separate distribution from manufacturing, none of them use APIs, right? They all use messaging protocols. So the airline industry has a messaging protocol between you know, the global distribution systems and the inventory holders. Um, when the buy side separates from the sell side in capital markets, they use fixed sessions. They still do. That all happens over fix, right? Um, that, that is not an API. It's, it's an eventing mechanism. And, and the reason for that is the only way to scale that this distribution manufacturing separation is to use um, uh, asynchronous events. So one of my party pieces in banking is to say, well, there is one part of banking that separated distribution from manufacturing a long time ago. Uh, and that's the ATM, the automated teller machine. Yep. Uh, or people call them ATM machines. That's an automated teller machine machine. Right? <laughs> and they, they use a PIN number, which is a personal identification number number. So it's using. And um, uh, well, when, you, when you go to the, the machine, uh, stick your card in and ask for 100 euros, um, it, it, it will go to the bank account for a funds reservation. Bank account will come back saying yes or no to the funds reservation, and it will give you the money or not. Um, but, but actually, that is not synchronous. That, that's asynchronous. There's two one-way messages. It's funds authorization request that gets sent, and a separate funds authorization response that comes back. And the, the ATM, it's the device handler behind the ATM, uh, typically base 24 from ACI, um, uh, will, will receive the request, put it in its database, uh, emit the request for funds authorization, and commit the task. Right? And then um, uh, it, will, it will go and do other work. And then eventually a message will come back. A listener will pick up the message give it to the, the handler software in the de device handler, and it will correlate that message to the database, pick up the session and say, yes, you can have your money, right? And if you, so I've calculated, the typical timeout before you say could not contact your bank is 43 seconds. So I've calculated that, that, that if you um, didn't do it with two asynchronous messages, you'd need about 300 times as many CPUs uh, if if the banks were going slow, right? So it, may, it makes it 300 times cheaper to do two one-way messages than, than to do a synchronous call. So, so when you go from one system to another, it's always going to be cheaper and better to use one-way messages 
than to do synchronous calls. But, but because people fixate on the user interface and its interaction with the, the front office systems, they, they forget about this. And, and in fact, it was always a rule of thumb when I was at IBM doing business system planning, that for one transaction entered by a person pressing a button into an information system, that you'd do five more transactions behind the scenes, right? So, so if you concentrate just on the user interface and its transactions, you're only talking about one sixth of what the enterprise does. And, and one of the reasons that was hidden is because a lot of it takes place in bulk processing. Right? But, but as we move to event-driven architecture, which is cheaper, better, faster, and that bulk gets broken down into uh, real-time events, it will become much more obvious that five-sixths of what the enterprise does is that event-driven stuff. Do you think people uh, think APIs are about integration when in reality they're about experience? Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons for that is that um, a lot of the people who, who start doing integration architecture started as programmers. And it's just a universal rule for me <laughs> that every programmer thinks integration is a remote procedure call, right? So I actually had a good experience at Bank of Ireland. I took them through, we were doing enterprise architecture for Bank of Ireland in 2007, um, my first big engagement at Capgemini. And um, I took them through this, I took, you know, through this whole argument. It's, it's my fifth golden rule of integration. To, for one system to get any other system to do something, you have to have three transactions, right? So I've taken them through this. And uh, I said, you know, for example, the ATMs. And they said, no, the ATMs are synchronous. And I said, no, they're not. And we got out the base 24 manuals and it's two one-way messages. Um, so that was 2007. 2012, when I was at, at uh, Terminal, so I got a call from one of those architects who said, uh, John, I, I owe you a pint. Uh, I said, why? He said, because ACI came to talk to me about um, their new systems and they didn't know that base 24 does two one-way messages. <laughs> So um, it's, it's just, it's just, it's, it's knowledge you have if you've done it, yeah. but if you haven't, you, you think it works another way, right? So, so this really, for me, it's the fundamental problem of, of enterprise architecture is to separate interaction from integration. Okay. Uh, we, we've got five minutes left, John, so I'm just going to run through a couple of questions that we've had. I think I've only got halfway through the questions I wanted to ask you, which just shows <laughs> how much there is to get out of me. Um, I've had a question from somebody who's who's in a high-growth business and working on um, reporting and creating a suite of dashboards to allow them to make better decisions in real time. So do you have any golden rules for people trying to create systems that allow them to make better decisions? Yes. Um... So the industry calls it CQRS, Command Query Responsibility Separation. But, but um, again, uh, the airline industry, uh, when, when I did that project, send them to acquire Galileo, the, the airline industry was adapting to travel agents being replaced by booking engines, you know, booking like Skyscanner and Travelocity. When, when, a, when a professional worker does the, does the job, uh, you can pretty much say it'll be five reads for every write. Five looks for every book, as they say in the airline industry. So the look to book ratio for, for years was five to one, right? When they replaced, when, when Sabre had to face Travelocity and Skyscanner instead of Wagon-Lee uh, um, travel agents, it went to a thousand to one. So, so all of the global distribution system had to move the shopping query onto a separate system designed for that and, and then have the, the updates go through the original 
airline reservation system. And as banking, you know, as, as our channels increasingly are internet facing, not employee facing, we have to do the same thing. We should, we should expect look to book ratios of thousand to one, right? Uh, and in fact, I've run around all the banks and the, the, asked them, what's your look to book ratio? And they say, well, we don't track it, but I can, they can, they say, well, I can tell you that the average online uh, mobile bank user logs on uh, 20, 25 times a day, right? And doesn't do any transactions. So they're saying, from that point of view, that the mobile bank is like infinite look to book ratio, yeah. and they do all the transactions on a laptop, right? So, so my recommendation would be just, just for whenever you design anything that's going to be channel facing, have the, the reporting run on a separate service, separate database from the record keeping, right? And, and in fact, we've known, from, well, it was in, in the 80s, we thought you could have a single database to do both, but we now know you can't. Right. Uh, and it's because the physical model is different. The, the record keeping database to scale should have no indexes. The reporting database to scale should be fully indexed. Right. And they have different logical models. The logical model of the record keeping is I need to keep just enough information to have the precondition of the next transaction. And I don't want to keep any more information than that. Any more than that makes the system cost more. Then the reporting system is the exact opposite. It's a historical view of everything that's happened. Right. So different logical models, different physical models. And that, 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 that's the, the number one rule for scaling a channel-facing system. Um, I, I have another question here from somebody. I didn't think we'd get this session without a question on distributed ledger technology. They're asking, what's the role that that can play in banking and are we on a cusp of uh, Web 3.0? Yeah, okay, so distributed ledger technology, it, it, you know, it's, it's two things, it's smart contracts and blockchains. Um, so, so I uh, did some research and wrote a paper for, for the Temenos board, uh, you know, back in 2015 on, on blockchain. Um, and, uh, I, it's a distributed database. That's the first thing. <laughs> um, uh, so just looking at distributed ledger to begin with and a smart contract later, distributed ledger, um, there, there are, you know, roughly speaking, three kinds of distributed database. Um, there's a, and that's because of the cap theorem. Uh, so database can be consistent uh, uh, and or uh, available and or partition tolerant. It can be any two, but not all three. So you can have one that's consistent and available. You can have one that's consistent and partition tolerant. And you can have one that's available and partition tolerant. Those are the three. So, so the distributed ledger is one that's uh, available and partition tolerant. Which gives it a problem with consistency. Well, so, so, so in fact, they're all designed to be consistent and partition tolerant, which gives you a problem with availability, right? So, so the, the way I position the DLT is it's really a back office database. What that means is it manages an asset, it manages the ownership of an asset. So that, uh, your application fits DLT if it's about the ownership of an asset in the back office. If it's inherently collaborative, right, um, right, and if it's relatively slow changing, so the reason for that is uh, it's back office database, so it's about change of ownership, uh, about managing ownership of assets. Um, it's collaborative, so you're going to have multiple instead of having multiple instances of the database maintained by different people with messages passing between them. It, you, you have one instance of the database that they all access. Well, that's, so that's the collaborative bit. 
And then because that involves a distributed consensus, um, a possibly a relatively heterogeneous distributed consensus, it's going to it's going to have to be it's not going to be very fast, right? You, so in the middle office where you exchange risk, that's always two parties. It's never multi multi collaborative. So you you don't want to use DLT for middle office. What you want to use there is is, is an message, but you can use it for the back office. For, so I looked at what we do in Terminus, and what we do is front and middle office. We don't we don't really do back office, right? We we don't manage the general ledger of the bank. We we send data to the general ledger, but we don't manage it. And there's no asset that we own and manage in Terminus product line. So I said that there are lots and lots of use cases for DLT. None of them are central to Terminus. I said, however, that there's one use case that we could go into as a new line of business where DLT would be relevant, and that's settlement, uh, settlement of payments. Yeah. And, in and in fact, if you look at um, DLT projects that have actually gone anywhere in finance, they've all been about settlement. Yeah. Now, now we come to smart contracts. Um, smart contracts involve immutable code. And uh, we as an industry are useless at immutable code. We don't know how to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm very wary of smart contracts. And, and in fact, that there have been a whole series of catastrophes because of smart contracts and not being able to change the code. Uh, so DAO crashed and burned. Uh, the Parity Wallet crashed and burned. Um, the, the Bitcoin split was because they, they had, um, uh, even though it's not Turing complete, um, the Bitcoin blockchain that does have sort of smart contracts and they couldn't be changed. So they had to fork the, fork the blockchain. So, so it's, um, uh, I'm very wary of those smart contracts. Um, the, and in, in fact, at IBM, when I was working on CICS, we, we pioneered uh, proving modules and kicks correct. We, we worked with the programming research group at Oxford on using uh, Z to specify some modules. And um, the modules were took five times longer to design, but were five times more reliable in production. Um, but they still had bugs. You just, yeah, you cannot produce 100% bug-free code. John, um, I'm conscious of time. So I'd like to thank you for firstly for joining us on the, on the podcast today. It's very insightful for me to hear your uh, overview and experience and background. And I, and I look forward to working closely with you over the next few years. Uh, it's an important stage of the company. Um, I'd like to thank the listeners for joining and uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks very much, Chris. I'm looking forward to it too. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.